welcome to the Locking Castle Church podcast. This Sunday morning teaching was given as part of the Health Check series. Yes, these are not easy passages, are they? <laughs> it's funny because you look through and you think, oh, that's a difficult one. And then you look at all the others and you think, oh, they're all pretty difficult, really. So I think we should have um, an image of the area, thank you, Um, just because it helps me to have a visual, Um, so hopefully it'll help you as well. Um, So we um, we have the bigger picture which shows the wider context um, of the seven churches where they are in Europe and in Asia. Um, So you can see over top left we have Greece um, and then to the right of the Aegean Sea we have Turkey, Uh, just below that we have Cyprus and then on down to Jerusalem uh, and Lebanon. And then we also have the purple uh, pinpoints, those are the seven churches. So just so that you can picture whereabouts it is. And the, and the context of the, of the church and the churches. Um, so today we are in Sardis. So at least that's an easy one to pronounce as opposed to some of the others. So we're in Sardis. And, you know, our, our nation has been through a lot of changes in the last few years. Do you remember that incredible week when the Queen died and we had two Prime Ministers or something? And you you begin to think, like, what is happening? But also, in our church, we've been through a time of transition. Um, Unexpected, as change usually is. And often we find it difficult when we're going through a time of change. It was only last Sunday, it seems like forever ago, that Andy was uh, prayed in as our um, lead minister. <laughs> I can never remember what to call him because you just call him Andy, don't you? <laughs> so, but our, our lead minister. And, you know, as people, we tend to not like change. I don't know, maybe some of you here do like change, but for most people, we don't like change. There is, there's an old, um, apparently, Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times. But most of us don't want to live in interesting times. We want to live in times that are secure and safe, where things don't change very much. Like a little bit of change, you know, go away on holiday, get out of our regular routine. But generally speaking, we like things to stay the same. But the thing with God is, he likes change. And just when we begin to get comfortable, he seems to like to swap things around and and push us out of our comfort zones. I'm getting a few nods, so obviously some of you have experienced that. Change can make us fearful. We prefer the status quo. We like our comfort. Andy even said last Sunday morning, he said, oh, I was very comfortable serving under Tom. 
you know, it's nice, isn't it, when we've got someone that we trust who, who's in the lead and, and we think, yeah, I can just get on and do my thing and it's all okay. But then God speaks and things begin to change and that can make us feel very uncertain of what we're doing. You know, too much comfort and too much familiarity can actually be really dangerous for us. We like it, but actually it can be dangerous for us, particularly in our faith. And this was what the church in Sardis discovered. Now, Sardis was a very prosperous city. It stood on some main trade routes, so they became very wealthy. They were in a good position geographically. And it's believed that Sardis was where the first coins were ever produced. If you've heard of the saying, rich as Croesus, Croesus was the king of Sardis. And so the, throughout the whole area, it was known as a very rich, wealthy, comfortable, luxurious city to come from. It was also known as a place of loose morals. People were pleasure seekers. They had the amount of money, the wealth, the time to seek after their own pleasure. Now, bear in mind, this was not, the gospel had only been spreading for a few decades, but it, it had already reached, um, I think it's about, we said this earlier, didn't we, 600 miles direct from Jerusalem across to uh, Turkey to where these seven churches were. And that had happened in just a few decades, traveling around by the coast because the main transport routes were by sea. So that's why you can probably trace the route that the gospel spread. Now, Sardis as a city apparently stood high on a cliff and it should have been very easily defended because in order to get to it, any attackers had to climb up the cliff to get to them. And so they thought that they were safe. They thought that they were secure. They were very self-satisfied, very confident in their own abilities. And because of that, because they got too comfortable and self-satisfied, they actually failed to guard the city walls. And so twice, the city was attacked and taken with very little effort by opposing armies. You'd think they would have learnt the first time, oh, we are, we are vulnerable, we really ought to you know, make sure we have watchmen on the walls, but they didn't. They, they just fell back into their comfort and their routine and their, their self-satisfaction. they didn't learn from their lesson. And if you've heard the phrase, thief in the night, again, that is where that phrase comes from. 
because both times they were attacked in the night by people finding weaknesses in their defenses, climbing up cracks in the, in the cliff face and making their way into the undefended city. They came at night, so the phrase, like a thief in the night, that refers to this city as well, which is why it's mentioned later on. So, of the seven churches who received a letter, only two had nothing good said about them, and Sardis was one of those two. Now, I just want you to imagine that you are part of a church, maybe Locking Castle, and you hear that a letter is coming from Jesus himself. And he is going to speak a word directly to this church. Can you imagine your excitement? We're having a word directly from Jesus. He's bringing a word for us. And then the messenger arrives. He opens up the scroll that the letter would have been written on. And he begins to read. And there is not one word of positivity in the whole letter. Now, how would that make you feel? What a challenge it must have been for the people of that church. You know, we're looking at these letters as a spiritual health check for the church, but also as a spiritual health check for us, because the church is made up of people. I don't know if you've realized that, the church is not the building. <laughs> Buildings are useful, but the church is made up of people. And there's a, a scripture that talks, I think it's in 2 Peter, that talks about us being living stones, being built together. And I was, try, I was actually trying, I tried for ages, didn't I, to find a picture, because when I, whenever I hear that phrase, built of living stones, I get a picture of all these little people, a bit like jelly babies, all squished together and all wriggling, trying to get out of the wall. Because stones, when you build with stones, they stay where you put them. I don't know if you've noticed that, you put a stone in a wall, it generally, unless there's an earthquake, stays where you put it. But if you're building with living stones, they have an opinion about where they should be, about who should be next to them, don't they? Well, I don't like them. You can't put me there. But I don't want to do that. I know you're telling me to go there and do that, but I don't want to do that. And they move and wiggle and wriggle around and try and get out of the things that God is saying. And that's why we need patience and grace with one another. And why the Lord needs a lot of grace with all of us. So, if Jesus wrote you as an individual a letter today, and you received it, don't worry, I haven't done this, 
But if you received it and you opened it today, what would that letter say about you? What would it say about your relationship with the Lord and where you are today in your walk with him? Would it be a challenging letter like this with nothing good to say about your walk with him? Or would it be a mixture, some good, some bad? A bit like the school reports that we used to get. I hope there would be more good than bad. With the exception of Smyrna and Philadelphia, the danger from within each church is more destructive than the danger from without. It's unlikely that many of us here today face persecution for our Christian faith, face death for simply being a Christian. The danger for us as well comes from within, not from without. So let's look in more detail at Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. As Kat spoke so eloquently last week, Jesus knows us and sees us. He sees us exactly as we are. We can't pull the wool over his eyes. We can't pretend to be something. He knows us. One of the good things about him knowing us is that we never need be afraid of confessing our sin to him because he knows it already. We can never be fearful that he will be disappointed in us because he knows us already, so he can't be disappointed. He knows us. He knows every single thing about us. And he still loves us. That blows my mind every time I think about it. We don't need to fear him because he loves us. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have a reputation. What is our reputation? What is our reputation amongst our fellow believers? Are we known as someone who loves the Lord? who makes him our top priority? What's our reputation like amongst non-believers? 
If I went to your workplace, your college, wherever you spend your time, maybe with your family, and I asked them about your reputation, what would they say? Would they say, yeah, I know them. I know, I don't believe, but I know that they do. They love God. I know if I need help or if I'm in trouble, they're the person I can go to and I can talk to. Or would they be surprised to hear that you're actually a believer? But even more important than that, what is your reputation before God himself? How would Jesus describe you? Here it says you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Alive. The church looked really good from the outside. There was a lot going on. Meetings, worship nights, things happening, people getting together. But that's all outward. That's the thing that people see when they look at you. But what is really going on on the inside? They were busy. They were doing the deeds. But was God in any of the things they were doing? See, there's no point being busy if none of it is what God's asking us to do. We can replace the presence of God for being busy for him. So was any of it for God? Apparently not, as Jesus describes the church as dead. That's pretty condemning, isn't it? You are dead. I looked up the meaning of the word dead, and it means dead. (laughs) No life, no sign of life. Not just physically dead, but spiritually dead. Dead and corrupt. When something dies, the body begins to decay. It begins to smell. It's not very pleasant to be around. We're supposed to give off the fragrance of Jesus, not the fragrance of a body decaying. Let me read a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 23. If I can find them. Matthew chapter 23. And these are the words that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees 
and the teachers of the law. Matthew chapter 3, 20, 23, beginning at verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of the hypocrisy and wickedness. Not so much of the gentle Jesus meek and mild in that passage. I wonder, do we look good on the outside? but on the inside were full of dead men's bones. No life. Are we hypocritical in our faith? Full of life when we're here together with fellow believers, but not actually living it when we get out in the world. What is our relationship with Jesus like? when we're not with other believers. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Jesus calls the church to wake up, as Andy demonstrated so well earlier. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Wake up. There is still possibility for this church. Jesus is holding out words of hope. If you wake up, then there is still time. There is still time. Remember, therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. There are consequences if they do not wake up and begin to do the things that he has called them to do. You know, if Jesus tells you something once, you should pay attention. But if he repeats the same word twice, you really need to sit up and pay attention. If it's three times, you really need to get on whatever he's saying. So here Jesus is saying to the church, go back to what you first heard and believed. The basics of faith. Check that you are still building on the right foundation. You know, it's so easy to just go off a little bit. Just compromise a little bit. Just lose your way a little bit. But the Lord is saying, turn from doing things your own way. 
and follow me with your whole heart? Are we doing things our own way? Are we making our plans and then asking the Lord to bless them? We're usually really good at doing that. Well, I, I think I'm going to change jobs. Okay? Have you asked the Lord? What, what does he say about that? I was talking to someone elsewhere, nowhere around here, um, just ended up giving her a lift somewhere, and she began to tell me, she's a fairly new Christian, she said, oh, I, I said, what do you do? She said, oh, uh, well, I was waitressing. She said, but I've decided I, I've just given my job up and I'm going to sit and wait for God to show me what to do. Okay. So did God actually tell you to give your job up? Uh, no. Okay. So how are you going to live while you're doing this? Well, God will provide. Well, yes, he will if you're doing the thing he's told you to do. But he won't provide for our presumption. He calls us to listen to him and follow what he's saying. Not make our own plans get him to bless them, but to seek after him with everything that we are. Say, Lord, my life is yours. Show me, guide me, lead me. I want to follow in your footsteps, not do my own thing. You know, God's plans for us are always far more greater, better, more exciting than the plans that we can make for ourselves. They're usually a lot scarier as well. But don't we want to live like that? Following him where he leads, doing the things that he calls us to do, not trying to earn his blessing by doing things that he's not even asked us to do. Our deeds are worth nothing to him. Our obedience is everything. Have we begun to follow another gospel than the one by which we were saved? You know, the Bible has to be our plumb line. It has to be our guide and our reference for everything. But how do we know if what we are believing is right, if we never read the Bible for ourselves? We don't. We have no way of knowing. We cannot rely on our own understanding because that will lead us astray. We have to rely on the word of God. That is our sure foundation. That is our guidance, our direction. You know, if you are on a, a flight and you're flying from London over to Vancouver, if you are two degrees off, by the time you get to where you think you're going, you're actually in Seattle. That's two degrees. Two degrees different. That's why we need to continually be course correcting, checking 
where we are, what direction we're heading. Are we still heading in the direction that the Lord told us to go? Are we bringing our lives in alignment with his will and his word? Because if not, we could end up not just in a different place, but in a completely different country to the one that we're supposed to be in. This is quite a tough message, isn't it? Yeah? You should have tried writing it. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, it says this, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. You know, the letter to the seven churches was written just a few decades after that letter was written to Timothy. And already we see they were pursuing their own way. They were making their own choices for how they would live. They were compromising with the, the community and the city that they lived in, worshipping other gods, leading immoral lives. Remember, this is written to the church, to the people of God in the church. This was not to the city they lived in. This was to those who were supposed to be representing Jesus on earth. What a challenge. But in verse 4, we see that even in the midst of the corruption, there were some who remained faithful to the Lord. Let's read verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. And that word soiled refers particularly to sexual immorality. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. White is a symbol of purity and holiness. Jesus is saying there are some, even amidst everything that's going on, there are some who are still following me, pursuing me. They are pursuing holiness. The holiness that I've called them to pursue. And he says they will walk with me. You know, to walk with someone in this way speaks of intimacy. Just as Moses spoke with the Lord face to face, just as Enoch walked with God and was no more, just as God walked in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden, looking for Adam and Eve, it speaks of an intimacy. And that is something that the Lord is longing to have with us, that we would long to have that level of intimacy with him, that we walk with him step by step, day by day, listening to his voice. You know, if you go for a walk with someone, you get to talk. 
I don't know what it is about walking with someone, I think because you're doing something else, but you really get to know someone. And they can say things that they wouldn't say if you were sitting down necessarily face to face. The Lord is calling his church worldwide to pursue him, to pursue intimacy with him, to allow him to really know you and speak into your life. And he keeps saying it because the people of God are not doing it. They're not getting it. But the call is going out. Come walk with me. Hear my voice. Learn to recognize even the whisper of my voice. Verse 5 He who overcomes will be like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge him before my father and his angels. Do we want to be acknowledged before our father in heaven? Do you want to be welcomed in? For him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, the book of life is the place where God writes all those who belong to him. He writes your name. When you surrender your life to him, your name is written in the book of life. That is so precious to know that your name is written in that book of life. I want to ask you a question today. Is your name written in the book of life? Remember, this letter was written to a church. Not to the city outside, but to the church of God in that city. So I ask you, is your name written in the book of life? You know, when I've asked people that question, I sometimes get a, ooh, I hope so. Maybe. Well, I'd like to think so. You know, I'm going to sound a bit like Yoda here. <laughs> it's yes or no. There is no maybe. It's a question with a definite answer. You are either a follower of Jesus Christ who has surrendered their life to him, or you are not. If you are not, your name is not written in the book of life. If you have surrendered your life to him, if you have accepted his death on the cross as payment for your sin, and you are living for him, then your name is written in the book of life. We can have that certainty and that assurance, not because we are perfect or wonderful or do amazing things, 
Our deeds are worth nothing, but simply because we have trusted in Jesus for our salvation. Nothing to do with us, everything to do with him. So I want to challenge you today. If, if I asked you that question, and your answer would be, hmm, I hope so, maybe, then make sure today you can have that assurance. Come talk to me after, talk to Andy, talk to Emily, talk to Caroline, any of the people with lanyards. They would love to pray with you, to lead you to Jesus, that you would have that certainty. There's an amazing hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. If you have assurance, that is worth everything. And he wants us to have that assurance that our lives belong to him. And then verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm assuming we've all got ears, yeah? Most, most people have two, one on either side. It's not about having ears, it's about having ears to hear. <laughs> having ears to hear. You can hear physically words, but it's more than that. Because when God uses the word hear, it always comes with the understanding that you will do what you hear. It's not, I've heard the words and it's gone in one ear and out the other. I know I will look at doubt, but we've all had those conversations, haven't we? Where, no, I definitely told you, but you weren't listening. Yeah? <laughs> when Jesus speaks, let's do him the honor of hearing and obeying, especially if we say we belong to him. This is a challenging message. None of the letters to the seven churches are easy. But the Lord is wanting to speak to us. So just pause for a moment and say, Lord, what would you say to me if I received a letter from you today? But also, as members of this body, what is the Lord saying to us? about this church, here and now. Because we can all hear the Lord. He never stops speaking. So what is the Lord saying to us? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. To find out more about Locking Castle Church, please visit our website at lockingcastlechurch.org.